Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name's Rick Samprin. The victim in the Chicago Blackhawks sexual assault scandal has come forward. What is going on with gas prices? The Pope is coming to Canada. Will he be packing an apology? Mandating vaccines for teachers? How much are we paying for Trudeau's cabinet? And more people are unsurprisingly using food banks. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There's a 20-year-old... I would never dream or you could never imagine being put in this situation by somebody that's supposed to be there to help you and to make you a better hockey player. That is Kyle Beach, the former player at the heart of the Chicago Blackhawks sexual assault scandal who has courageously come forward publicly with his story, telling TSN that he was abused by former Blackhawks video coach Brad Aldrich at Aldrich's apartment during the 2010 Stanley Cup playoffs. And if that wasn't bad enough, he says the front office knew about it and did nothing. Beach has filed a lawsuit against the Hawks over their handling of this incident. Aldrich, for his part, claims any contact was consensual and denies any wrongdoing. Cindy Boren is a sports reporter with the Washington Post and joins us now to discuss this important topic. Cindy, good morning. Thanks for joining us on Good Morning Hamilton. Great to be with you. Thank you. First off, we'll start with uh, your thoughts on Kyle Beach uh, publicly identifying himself. I think we've all been paying attention to the uh, issue of sexual abuse of, of vulnerable athletes, uh, particularly with the gymnastics and USA Gymnastics team. This it was just gutting. Uh, it was just gutting to listen to Kyle Beach talk about what he went through. I mean, this was a minor league player called up to the, the NHL, and he was preyed upon by by this person, and he did what he was supposed to do. He reported it up the chain of command, and the Blackhawks ignored it to the tune of being fined by the NHL. The National Hockey League did find the team $2 million. It seems like a drop in the bucket for the oh, yeah. team that I think is listed fourth overall on Forbes' you know, NHL uh, list in terms of uh, team worth. $2 million doesn't seem nearly enough. No, it really doesn't. Um, and, and it's also not enough to say, well, all of the people who were involved are no longer around. Uh, you know, it's just not enough. And I, I, presumably that's why Brad Aldrich has a lawsuit. Uh, Hawks general manager Stan Bowman uh, has resigned. Of course, the team has been fined. Is there going to be more fallout for any of the other individuals? And I'm referring to then-head coach Joel Quenville, who's now the head coach in Florida, and then assistant general manager Kevin Chevaldeoff, who's now in charge in Winnipeg. Are those two individuals going to see any sort of uh, penalties against them? I would be surprised if they do not. Um, although it's always it's always dicey when you predict that that a, a league, um, whether it's Major League Baseball punishing the Astros and the people involved in that cheating or, or whatever, um, it, you know it's always kind of dicey. But but both of those gentlemen that you mentioned are going to meet with Gary Bettman today in New York City, and we'll see what comes out of that meeting. Their names, as well as Stan Bowman, is on the Stanley Cup for 2010. Will their names be removed? Should there is there a call to remove their names? There certainly has been in the initial reporting this morning since Kyle Beach has uh, uh, stepped forward and put his name on, on what had happened until yesterday he was the anonymous player who had been uh, the subject of abuse. And yesterday he came forward. So, you know, now I think the story's kind of reaching a critical mass, and certainly there will be calls for it. I, 
I'm I'm not sure how you deal with something like that. Uh, for instance, how does how did the Pro Football Hall of Fame deal with O.J. Simpson? He's he's still in the Hall of Fame. He's still got a bust. So it, it's difficult, and it, each each league deals with it differently. I, I don't really know how how you take their names off the Stanley Cup, but. You know, if it were up to me, I'd take them off. <laughs> <laughs> Cindy Boren is our guest, sports reporter at the Washington Post. We're chatting about Kyle Beach publicly coming out to identify himself as the victim at the center of the Chicago Blackhawks sexual assaults uh, investigation. The biggest question is, is this going to lead to a culture change in hockey? One would hope so. Um, you know, as, as you, you guys well know, uh, there are a number of young players uh, who come up in hockey probably more quickly than in, in several other sports. You know, in, in, say, the NBA or the NFL, we're kind of used to seeing them coming coming around when they're, you know, after college um, or, you know, when they're 20. And you've got kids kids who are teenagers, youngsters, who are in, in the pipeline in minor leagues and, and playing away from home. And they're, they can be preyed upon. They're very vulnerable. And hopefully, you know, hopefully the awareness is increased tenfold by this, um, as it was with the gymnastics. I'm with you there. Let's uh, let's hope we see a lot of change in this regard. Cindy, thank you very much for the time, and thanks for reporting on this story as well. Thank you. Cindy Boren, sports reporter, Washington Post, chatting about uh, the Kyle Beach situation involving the Chicago Blackhawks. Um, yeah, we got to get to a better place. There's no doubt about it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're talking about money. We're talking about money that we are paying for gas. It's crazy. 149.9? Come on, man. They've hit an all-time high in Hamilton and the GTA. And the suggestion is uh, we haven't seen anything yet. Now, we had Dan McTagg, gas price watcher on the program, I think it was last week, said, hey, buck fifty on the way by Remembrance Day. Well, we're <laughs> we're point one of a cent there. My goodness. Is it pushing you a little closer to making the decision to get an electric vehicle? Here to talk about these crazy gas prices and why they are so high is Rory Johnston. He's the founder of the Commodity Context Newsletter and managing director at Toronto-based investment firm Price Street. Rory, good morning. Thanks for joining us on Good Morning Hamilton. Morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. So I think a lot of people are asking themselves regarding gas prices, what the heck? What's happening? Yeah, and I, I think the the easiest thing to understand about why gas prices are so high is that oil prices are extremely high. Um, you know, we're down a little bit over the last two days, but we were at for WTI West Texas West Texas Intermediate, which is the main North American benchmark for crude oil. That was back at the highest level since 2014, when you know we had that first initial massive drop in oil prices that brought us lower. Um, so, you know, we're at very, very high oil prices, and I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. Uh, but the other thing that's important to remember about why pre- gasoline prices are so high is that oil prices are high and the Canadian dollar is still relatively low. So on a currency adjust basis, we're getting hit with all of that extra uplift. Add in some, you know, a, a, you know, additional uh, gasoline taxation, uh, both in terms of the provincial and the carbon tax, and that's how you get to, you know, like you were saying, about a buck fifty a liter right now. I was, I have a gas station just down the road from me that I walk by, and every time I look at it, it's, it, it's always still mind blowing. So, what has to happen with oil prices and our dollar for us to get back to, let's say, a dollar a liter? Wow, a lot, unfortunately. <laughs> oh um, no. <laughs> 
<laughs> so oil prices, let, let's start there. So I think that's the most important part. The, the, the dollar aspect is a little bit of a bigger picture. Uh, COVID and the way all of the investment funds are flowing into the US dollar and interest rates. And I don't think that's going to be changing tremendously. But I think there's there could be a lot of excitement and volatility uh, on the oil price side of things. Uh, and I think what we're seeing over the last couple of days is case in point. So we were up to about 85 bucks a barrel for WTI. And now, we're, you know, as of right now, we're down to about 80, uh, 81, buck, 81 bucks a barrel. Um, so what's happening? Uh, the biggest thing is that we don't have enough oil being produced right now globally uh, for the amount that's being consumed. So inventories of crude oil globally are falling like a rock. Uh, and the main reason for that right now is OPEC. Uh, OPEC is holding back still about 5 million barrels a day of oil from the market. Uh, but the important thing to remember about that is that they kind of saved the oil market back in April 2020 uh, when prices were falling towards negative levels. They cut back just about 10 million barrels a day or 10% of global supply in order to balance the market and stop everything from effectively exploding in the spring of 2020. Um, what they've been trying to do is ease that back into the market slowly uh, as uh, the as the world economy can kind of, uh, you know, facilitate and accommodate that new supply when demand rises. Uh, so they've been doing that and trying to keep things tight so that there's still this price signal like we're seeing right now going to the rest of the oil market to say, pump more. We need more oil. But what we're seeing right now is despite prices being at the highest level since 2014, we really aren't seeing a pickup in Canadian production and particularly U.S. production, uh, you're just not seeing, uh, you know, uh, oil and gas drilling uh, companies kind of go and chase this price signal higher. They're all on this mantra right now of returning money to investors uh, and not pumping more oil because for the last decade, they've pumped way, way, way too much oil and the returns have been terrible. That's the one thing that I've thought of uh, over the last number of months is, you know, we have Alberta that is, uh, you know, a major oil producer, whether it's, uh, you know, crude or, or oil sands bitumen. Uh, yet, you know, we're still seeing gas prices and oil prices not going the way we want them to go. It's the, it's the simple fact that we just can't produce as much as we want to or should. That's exactly right. And I think the thing that's and what we're seeing right now across basically the entire commodity sector, look at anything from copper and zinc and natural gas, and we're all seeing it in various ways. It was what I've been calling the the, the COVID or the pandemic bullwhip effect. Essentially, in the beginning of the pandemic, the entire global economy just effectively turned off for about a month. That caused tremendous kind of ripple effects that we're still feeling today. And what that did was, it, you know, you basically all the demand fell you know, basically on on the turn of a knob, all of these producers were watching uh, what was happening and they started throttling back uh, production uh, in order to basically not produce what wasn't needed. But then demand ripped back so much faster than they were able to turn that back around. You have to remember in most recessions, and I think back at the beginning of 2020, when we were heading into this, we thought this is going to be a fairly normal, awful recession, depression kind of economic event. When that happens, normally what happens is that services spending, people still get haircuts in recessions, but they don't buy a new TV or a new couch. This pandemic, this recession was the exact opposite. Everyone actually went to hyperdrive, refinishing their houses, buying new couches, buying new refrigerators, and no one was getting a haircut. So what happened essentially was the entire system got turned off and then revved to 120% within the span of like a week and a half. 
And the system just hasn't been able to keep up. And we're still fighting, fighting, fighting to get back to basically where we were standing at the end of 2019. We got one more minute here with Rory Johnston, founder of the Commodity Context Newsletter and managing director at Toronto-based investment firm Price Street. We're ta- chatting about uh, high gas prices in Hamilton and the GTA. We're expecting a price drop, from what I understand, tomorrow, upwards of about six percent. What's causing these big fluctuations? Right now, it's it, you know I was saying earlier how all of this is on OPEC and all of this is on this demand mismatch. Things are still so volatile. You know, we're still seeing a minor uptick right now in global COVID cases, for instance. And the entire investment apparatus, the entire markets trying to basically figure out where we're going to be next month or the month after that and trying to, you know, adjust prices accordingly. And right now we're seeing this cycle where investors are kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, maybe 85 bucks was right, or maybe it was a bit too much. Let's ease back and see where this goes. I think that's where we're at right now. So as I was saying, we're at about $81 a barrel for a WTI as of this morning. Uh, I think that could fall back a little bit more, uh, but I do think the longer term, kind of medium to longer term trajectory for oil is much stronger, particularly as we head into 2022. And as OPEC's cuts are completely wound down by fall of 2022, probably give or take. Uh, and then I start to get very, very kind of bullish uh, on higher oil prices going forward, which is going to be great for the Canadian economy and Canadian oil companies, less good for, uh, you know, consumers at the pump, myself included, particularly given the fact that the Canadian dollar likely isn't going to be back to where we would normally expect it to be in 80 to $100 oil, which is probably more like 90 cents to the U.S. dollar, whereas right now we're at about 80 cents. Well, we'll continue to dig deeper than we have ever before. Rory, thanks for the time today. Thanks so much for having me. Rory Johnston is the founder of the Commodity Context Newsletter and also the managing director at Toronto-based investment firm Price Street with a little 411 on what is happening with gas prices. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I know there are mixed views, mixed perspectives on that. Um, but in the in, in the grand scheme of what we call reconciliation, I think for Indigenous peoples, that full recognition of harm caused is something that uh, is long waited for from the from the Holy Father himself. That is Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Mark Miller reflecting on the latest news when it comes to reconciliation in this country. As Indigenous leaders continue to call on the Catholic Church to apologize for its role in the residential school system, the Vatican has said that Pope Francis is willing to visit Canada. Now, some are hoping that the pontiff's pilgrimage could lead to an apology that many have demanded, obviously, up until this point. Will it happen? That remains to be seen. Alan Jorgensen is a professor of systematic theology at Martin Luther University College at Wilfrid Laurier University and joins us now. Alan, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on this morning. Uh, as we know, there's you know hundreds of unmarked graves at former residential school sites in Canada. What's the significance of the Pope's visit? I don't think we can underestimate the significance of this visit for Roman Catholics, Christians in general, and Canadians indeed. Um, If you think about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls um, the number 58 is the first one of the four that deal with the church, and it asks for the Pope to give an apology on Canadian soil. So I think it's really a significant piece. So I guess the question is, is an apology coming from the Pope? Well, that's a good question. That hasn't been said in particular, but um, it has been described as a tour or a trip for reconciliation. Um, As we know from the work that our um, Indigenous um, scholars and activists have been telling us, there's no um, reconciliation without truth 
Um, there's no truth, and truth-telling is going to imply uh, look, facing the facts of this uh, these horrendous acts that have been committed at residential schools. So there's there's got to be a truth-telling element if it's really going to be about reconciliation. Um, and if it's about reconciliation, it also has to be about reparation. What are what's going to follow up from this? That is a good question. Um, we'll get to that in a second. But what happens if he doesn't apologize? You know, the final report from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission called for a papal apology. The prime minister has called on the pope to make a formal apology. What if Pope Francis comes here and does not offer an official apology? Well, that would be um, scandalous. Um the other churches that have been a part of um, the residential school system, the uh, Presbyterian, the United Church of Canada, which uh, once upon a time in, was included uh, the Methodist churches in its foundation, along with Presbyterian churches um, and the Anglican Church, um, have all made formal apologies. Um, so uh, the uh, inclusion of a Roman Catholic apology would be a fulsome completion of of uh, this important step on the way to reconciliation. It's not the completion of reconciliation, but it'd be an important step. Um, It's long overdue, and so um, I think it's time for this to happen. Alan Jorgensen is our guest, professor of systematic theology at Martin Luther University College at Wilfrid Laurier University. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, Once the Pope comes, and we're expecting sometime next year, and an apology is offered, what are some of the next steps in that process? Well, um, the fourth of those four uh, calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation call for um, funding for healing. Um, So that needs to to be uh, stepped up in an important way. Uh, The other two call for education for parishioners. Um, uh, Number 60 in particular calls for clergy to be educated with some um, mindful knowing of the the role of reconciliation um, and the history of the residential schools. And um, in that that education, there's a call that uh, Christians understand and accept Indigenous spirituality in its own right. So I think those are really important steps. The education of the of the clergy in particular, with some sensitivity to the history and for all parishioners, all people who count themselves uh, within the faith. And I think that really is not a, a goal for just Christians or people of faith, but for all Canadians to be mindful of this. The Catholic Church's image has taken a number of hits over the past. What would an apology do to its image? I think it would be a really important step for it. Again, it's overdue, but I think um, if the Pope was able to make this move, um, it would be uh, certainly an inspiration for uh, Roman Catholics and for um, Christians and generally, again, for all Canadians, and an invitation for all of us to consider, you know, what role have we played or what role can we play in working towards truth, reconciliation, and reparation. Um, This is uh, an important step, and it invites all of us to think about what's my next step in a good relationship with Indigenous peoples on Turtle Island. Does that apology also come with a a paycheck, an admission of guilt to say, hey, we're sorry, here's some money to help with this uh, reconciliation effort? Well, that's a great question. And again, I think um, probably it needs to be addressed to uh, the Canadian Council of Catholic Bishops. 
Um, that's, uh, I think that's a fair question, an important one, and really speaks to the fact that this is an overdue a step that really needs to happen as soon as possible. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Our guest is Alan Jorgensen, Professor of Systematic Theology at Martin Luther University College at Wilfrid Laurier University. We know that Pope Francis had agreed to meet with a number of residential school survivors at the Vatican this December. Um, Should we expect anything to come from that gathering? Does that meeting even have to be held now? Um, I, I I think that that the meeting is, is planned. So uh, to, to, to um, stop it would be a highly problematic and send problematic symbols um, uh, signals. So I think it'll, we can anticipate it'll be forthcoming. Um, And I think it's still important. I mean, it shows a commitment on the part of the Pope to be in conversation. It's a first, step in this journey of recon- this pilgrimage, he's calling it, of reconciliation. Um, so I think that that would be um, important to continue to do. Alan, really appreciate the time uh, this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you all have a great day. You too. Alan Jorgensen is a professor of systematic theology at Martin Luther University College at Wilfrid Laurier University, offering his thoughts on the uh, Pope's visit to Canada. We're expecting sometime next year. And it will also um, lay the groundwork, we're hearing, for um, uh, an apology or at least a, an admission of guilt. Uh, Toronto Cardinal Thomas Collins has said that the December meeting, in which the Pope will meet with um, various residential school survivors, will help lay the groundwork for this Canadian pilgrimage. So, yeah, we don't expect this December get-together to be cancelled. This is a big step uh, towards reconciliation. And hopefully when uh, the Pope does come to Canada, there will be an official apology and we can begin or continue to move forward on this file. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Education Minister Stephen Lecce claims up to 50,000 education workers, 50,000 in this province could be fired if COVID-19 vaccines were made mandatory. That figure includes Education workers like teachers, educational assistants, early childhood educators, principals, board staff, occasional staff, custodians who are unvaccinated or won't disclose their status. So what we do know is that there's about 85 percent of education staff that say they are fully vaccinated. There's another 15 percent who have either not gotten a double dose or they have submitted a medical exemption or they just haven't released or um, shared their vaccination status, whether they have two shots or not. So uh, the question remains, where did the minister come up with this 50,000 number? Well, let's ask our next guest, Merit Stiles. She is the education critic for the Ontario NDP and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Merit. Good morning. So what kind of math is Mr. Lecce doing? I'd say bad math. Uh <laughs> You know, and, and I, and I got to tell you, I, he, he was responding to a question in the legislature for me um, about, you know, why the government wasn't moving faster on province-wide mandatory vaccination for education workers. And then he came up with this number. And I think the government's been scrambling ever since to try to legitimize it. But the truth is, you know, if he if he's coming up with this number, he's counting a lot of people who aren't even currently working in our schools, uh, you know, occasional workers. Uh, and, and even then, I think it's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is something that obviously has been, um, uh, you know, keenly interesting to uh, those who are in and out of the education field. 
Um, the 50,000 sounds a little high considering we have nearly 100,000 uh, full-time equivalent teachers, um, 85,000 in the elementary system, 40,000 in the secondary system. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of part-timers who are looking at the, not, that number thinking, wow, 50,000 education workers are suddenly axed. I'll certainly jump in. There's a lot of parents commenting on social media as well. And, and the sentiment is, why don't teachers want to protect our children? So what's going mm-hmm. on in that regard? Well, I, I first of all, I think, again, that this number of 50,000 is fiction. I don't think this is a real thing. And, and in fact, what we've seen is actually quite a high number of, of education workers who are vaccinated. But look, I mean, that's why we bring in mandatory vaccination uh, policies, right? And that's why boards like in Hamilton and Toronto and others are actually just going ahead and doing it because even though it's really hard for them to administer it without the province being on board, uh, which is unfortunate, um, it, it's the right thing to do because we know that it's one of the few tools we have that actually pushes people that little bit extra, I think, to actually make the decision to go ahead and get that vaccine. And, and you know, we still have some people who are hesitant. We still have some people who may refuse. Uh, but look, our kids and frankly, the other education workers in our system, you know, have a right to be safe and to feel confident and safe. And what this government is doing, throwing around you know, numbers like this and instilling, I think a little bit of fear in the system, frankly, is, is they're not instilling confidence, which is what we really need to be doing right now. That's the first thing that jumped to my mind. You know, this is the minister who I think is doing a little bit of fear mongering here. Yeah. And, you know, it's part of what I would say is a bit of a troubling pattern over the last week or so uh, from this government. We had the premier and I asked the premier about this yesterday uh, going uh, saying basically, oh, I I really identify with parents who might be nervous and maybe not want their five and six year olds to get to get vaccinated. And and then we have the the minister saying, you know, this is going to result in massive layoffs. And we have a government that's still to this day refused to uh, to ensure there was mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers and, you know, still going out there and, you know, oh, well, we just need to hear from the hospitals. Well, I think hospitals and other healthcare providers have made it really, really clear why they need the government to to take this action. And it seems like the government is just throwing in the towel at this point. Merritt Stiles is our guest, education critic, Ontario NDP. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you this morning. Another, uh, I guess, hard data that we can point to that goes against the minister's claims of upwards of 50,000 education workers could be fired if mandatory vaccines were a thing in the education sector is, and you mentioned it, you know, uh, school boards like the Hamilton Public Board in Toronto, the biggest uh, school board in the province, there hasn't been a, 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 a rash of layoffs and they have mandatory vaccine policies. That's right. And I mean, what I'm hearing actually from school boards is, you know, even even just the, the, the fact that the government hasn't brought in a policy like this and made it province wide means that they're all working extra hard. They're putting in a lot of extra administrative uh, hours and, and effort to try to you know, make this work. And I mean, they're doing the right thing. What we would really like to see is the government to step in and actually step up to the plate and and make this a province-wide policy. It's also really unfair that, you know, some kids, depending on where you live in this province, uh, can count on that kind of, a, of safety and other kids cannot. Right now, unvaccinated staff in the education field have to test negative twice a week. Is that good enough? 
Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm hearing from boards is that's really hard to administer. It's not that we won't, you know, it, it may, it may be working. I, I, but I can tell you right now that the, the school boards are having an extremely difficult time administering that it's, it takes a lot of, of time and money to stay on top of those things. Um, and that's why boards and school board associations and others are actually calling on the government to bring in that mandatory vaccination program and you know, step up and help them help our boards to administer this stuff. It's uh, it is, it is very complicated and it's hard to stay on top of all of those employees. And that's why we need policy like this that will also, I think, really will uh, contribute to higher vaccination rates. Last one for you. We know that a vaccine for children aged 5 to 11 is coming soon, fingers crossed, sooner rather than later. Um, uh, how is How should this be implemented? Is it going to be in the school? Should it be after school? So the, the science table came out just yesterday with a report saying, you know, it's, it's time that we looked at schools for the rollout of this of this vaccination plan. And we know that the Ford government has really been behind the eight ball throughout uh, this pandemic in terms of vaccination rollout. So what we're saying is, look, we don't need another hunger, hunger game scenario where everybody is 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 trying to you know get that vaccine. We need it in the schools. Uh, the government is saying they're, they are looking at that. I'm glad to hear that. But I want to make sure that. You know, it is offered during the school day, as well as, you know, there, there can be some flexibility here, but we really need to ensure that we make it as easy and as accessible and as equitable as possible, especially for parents who are already, you know, really taxed out, really having a hard time. Um, we need to make sure it's easy. And we know that school-based uh, van- vaccine programs have worked, you know, for lots of other mandatory vaccines in the past. So, you know, let's let's do this. Let's use the schools. That's the right place to do this. Absolutely. Merit, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Merit Stiles is the education critic with the Ontario NDP. And I think, yeah, the, the unleashing of the kids vaccine, if you will, it's got to be done in school and after school because, you know, there's a lot of parents who I think want to be there with their kids or their kids want their parents with them, even though that, you know, vaccines have been a thing in schools, whether it's HPV or whatnot. Um, I think it's got to be a measured approach and have some versatility to it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Prime Minister unveiling his cabinet earlier this week, 38 members of the cabinet. I remember when there was a an uproar when it hit 20 years and years and years ago. Now we're nearly at 40. And because we're nearly at 40, it's costing you and I, it's costing Canadian taxpayers, well, there's a lot of zeros on that check or those checks. And here to talk about those bulging checks is the director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Franco Terrazano. Franco, good morning. Thanks for joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Hey, good morning, and thanks so much for having me on. As I said, a lot of zeros here being floating around, and uh, it's they're all preceded by a, a big dollar sign. It, it's costing us a lot of money to pay for these MPs sitting in cabinet. Oh, it absolutely is. And it, of course, it has to come from taxpayers' pockets that they had the worst possible time to be seeing these costs go up. We're seeing 38 ministers were appointed by Trudeau the other day. That's eight more ministers than in 2015 when Trudeau first appointed his first cabinet. Um, this year's cost for his cabinet is going to balloon to $10.8 million. Now, that's just salary costs, which is three million dollars more than what his cabinet cost us in 2015 so it's simple math but unfortunately the math isn't working out well for taxpayers uh, more ministers plus bigger salaries equals higher costs for taxpayers and this uh, cost is going up as the federal debts continues to climb uh, we're still in a pandemic we're being told to you know watch 
where we go, how we spend our money, you know, saving for a rainy day. And it seems that the federal government is going in the opposite direction. Well, we've also been told that we're all in this together. But are we really all in this together? Um, We've seen all members of Parliament receive two pay raises since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, while millions of Canadians have struggled through COVID-19, while so many people in the private sector either lost their job, took a pay cut, may have lost their small business, while our ministers and prime ministers are now making significantly more money than they were pre-COVID-19. Uh, prime Minister Justin Trudeau is making $13,800 more than pre-COVID, and all ministers are receiving $10,100 more than pre-COVID. So, you know, to me, uh, to many taxpayers who are struggling uh, during COVID-19, I really think it feels like a bit of a slap in the face. Franco Terrazano is our guest, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We're chatting about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's new 38-member cabinet, which is costing us more than $10 million in salary. I mean, uh, back in 2015, it wasn't even $8 million. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the cost of salaries alone is now going to be $3 million more, but that's just salaries. We're not talking about other types of benefits. We're not talking about um, other types of expenses. We're not even talking about additional staff to staff those ministries, right? So these costs are going up. And, you know, one thing that I think is really important here is, is we have to remember, too, that Canada is an outlier among our de- other developed countries. Um, as far as I can see, Canada has the largest cabinet in the developed world. The United States cabinet is, is, is 25. Um, the cabinet size in the United Kingdom is 26. Australia is 24. In New Zealand, it's 20. And here in Canada, taxpayers are paying for 38 ministers plus the prime minister. Yeah, it adds up to a lot of money, that's for sure. $274,000 of the 38 ministers in the cabinet. That's how much they're pulling in a year. Uh, The PM making just north of $370,000. Is that too much? I mean, there's there's people out there that'll say, that's not enough. I mean, these are the leaders of our country. They should probably get that much and maybe even a little bit more. No, it's, it's absolutely too much money, especially if you consider the context of the pandemic, right? The first thing that we should be seeing is we should be seeing all members of parliament, including ministers and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, reversing those two pandemic pay hikes that they received. There is no reason that they should have received two pay raises while millions of their constituents have been struggling through COVID-19. And in fact, we've seen other world leaders do the right thing and take a pay cut. In New Zealand, um, almost immediately when COVID-19 started going through their country, their prime minister, their ministers, and even their top bureaucrats all took a 20% pay cut. And here in Canada, what did our members of Parliament do? Well, they've been gobbling up two pay raises. And, you know, you mentioned another important factor earlier on, and that's the fact that Canada is up to its eyeballs in government debt. The federal government is already more than $1 trillion in debt, which means each Canadian is on the hook for about $30,000 in federal government debt alone. And I don't think it's fair to ask taxpayers to be paying more money to cover bigger salaries for the prime minister and the minister and the ministers, sorry, during the pandemic. So we could, because, you know, the federal government is still in a minority government situation, uh, we could have an election in a couple of years' time, which again is going to cost many more millions of dollars. 
And depending on who forms the government, they might add a few ministers to the cabinet as well. I, I don't see this being reduced anytime soon in terms of the number of ministers in cabinet. What's the likelihood that you see? Oh, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, um, what, I, what I think what we need, though, is I think it's clear we need a culture change in Ottawa and, and, and really across many governments in Canada. I, unfortunately, we really just haven't seen the recognition from politicians, of course, in Ottawa, but other governments as well, recognize that Canadians are, have been struggling, um, especially in the private sector, especially small businesses. So we do need to see a culture change. They need to at least acknowledge that they're not spending their own money and the people's money that they're spending are really going through a tough time. And we certainly can't be affording tax hikes in the future to be paying for these bigger salaries in government. Yeah, we're tapped out, that's for sure. Franco, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. That's Franco Terrazano. He is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Yes, 38 members now in the Trudeau cabinet. That's eight more compared to six years ago. Two more compared to 2019. And now over $10 million in salaries being paid out to those ministers in cabinet. $10 million, That's just the cabinet. Add 300 more MPs to that list. There's 338 in this country. That's a lot of money. I know we want the representation. I know it's probably unfair to you know, heap a huge population on one individual in terms of uh, representation. But man, oh man, that is a lot of money we're paying. And that's just the federal government. There's two other layers of government that we're paying for as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Food Banks Canada is releasing its Hunger Count 2021 reports this morning, actually just out 51 minutes ago. It's the largest research study of food banks across Canada, and the term perfect storm is being tossed about. Why is that? Well, let's ask the Chief Networks Officer for Food Banks Canada, Kristen Beardsley, who joins us now. Good morning, Kristen. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on this morning. Um, Perfect storm. What are we talking about here? Well, what we're talking about is um, the shocking news that food bank visits topped 1.3 million in March 2021. So that means that uh, food banks were visited 1.3 million times in that single month alone. And that's a 20% increase over the pre-pandemic number of March 2019. And obviously the pandemic is, uh, you know, adding to the strain on society and obviously, you know, creating a lot of job losses and forcing people into food banks, right? Absolutely. And the perfect storm that we're talking about is high housing costs, as you said, pandemic job losses, the rising cost of food that we're all seeing, as well as this pullback of government supports, which make us really worried about what's to come. Um, we're, we're worried about a tidal wave of new clients that are going to rely on food bank services, and the demand is, is really shocking. Are the numbers any different in Ontario compared to the national numbers or from province to province, or is it generally the same? Actually, what we're seeing in Ontario is a significant increase. So uh, it is regional. Food bank use is driven, obviously, by local economies and, and things that are happening uh, locally. We're seeing in Ontario growth up 23% on food bank use. And we're also seeing trends that uh, food bank use is growing especially in urban centers. And that makes sense as the cost of living is um, beyond what many people can afford. What's the ratio between adults and children accessing food banks? This 
is a heartbreaking stat. I know um, it's hard to hear, but 33% of the people who are supported by food banks are children. And I think we can all agree that no child should be going to uh, to school hungry. And they only represent 20% of the population. So kids are overrepresented in food bank use generally. How is this impacting food banks themselves? Because, you know, these agencies or organizations are having to raise money. Uh, obviously, during a pandemic, they're having to collect food. What kind of pressures are food banks facing? It's enormous. Um, What we saw during the pandemic was such leadership, such innovation, pivoting, you know, sometimes almost daily to make sure that their operations were safe, that they were accessing the food. And when you think about trends like rising food costs and fuel costs, that affects the food bank, not only that more clients are coming in, but the food banks themselves are purchasing food. They're driving that food, driving to get that food, bringing it back to the food bank. So they're um, under strain with rising costs as well. Our guest this morning is Kirsten Beardsley, Chief Networks Officer with Food Banks Canada. We're chatting about the Food Banks Canada Hunger Counts 2021 report, which shows that uh, a lot of people are using food banks uh, in this province in this country. Um, I know that governments have stepped up with things like CERB and CRB. Is there any help for food banks? Absolutely. We we advocate for policy, government policy change. What we see, what we want to see is a, uh, a future where uh, no one goes hungry, where the food bank use comes down. And so we're advocating for governments to um, support renters living on low incomes, to modernize and expand supports for people who are recently unemployed or for low-wage workers, to move towards a minimum income floor. And we really encourage um, folks, um, anyone who's listening, to go to foodbankscanada.ca to learn more, to read the Hunger Count report, to share it with friends. We need everyone in Canada invested in a future where no one goes hungry in this country. And you mentioned the housing affordability issue is a huge issue during the campaign. I mean, it's just a huge issue in general with house prices going nuts, with rental prices going sky high. The cost of living has really compounded this situation. Absolutely. The majority of people who use food banks are market renters, and we're seeing that the the cost of paying that rent is not keeping up with, with incomes. And so we need support so that people can afford to live now. Um, and that's why we're advocating for policy change. The food banks are there to make sure that people have food on their table tonight um, and every day. But as a system, food banks advocate for long-term change. So we see those numbers come down in the future. Kirsten, thanks for the analysis and the insights this morning. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much. Kirsten Beardsley is the Chief Networks Officer with Food Banks Canada. The Hunger Count 2021 report is out. It shows that in March of 2021, Canadians made 1.3 million visits to food banks. That is a 20% increase over March of 2019 and the largest increase in visits since the country was plunged into recession back in 2008. Help out a local food bank. Donate. Uh, whether it's Hamilton Food Share or uh, whichever one you choose, um, help them out. And, uh, you know, you're helping out a lot of people. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.